So, Bob, I have some emails for you that we can read, and then we can see what we say in response to the emails. What do you say? What comes out of our faces again? Yeah. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor, and I'm also a podcaster. Who are you, Bob? I am a semi-frequent guest on your podcast. My name is Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist here in practice in Seattle. I see couples and teach a little bit of DBT. Okay, so this is a question from Reddit that wasn't directed to us, but I thought it was kind of an interesting thing. So this guy wrote, I am an undergrad student currently taking a class where we explore the different parts and paths one can take in psychology. And then he wrote out 12 questions, and I think it's for an assignment, right? Mm. Like he has to interview different professionals and, and you know, find out what it's actually like to work in our field. So I thought you and I would answer these questions. So yeah. tw- 12 questions. Number one, what is your job? So, Bob, how would you describe your job? Uh, I'm a couple therapist and uh, individual therapist and uh, DBT skills trainer. Okay. I am an individual and couple therapist. I used to work with children and teens and families, but I don't anymore just because of the referrals I get, I think. And I'm also a supervisor. I'm also Mm -hmm. a consultant. I'm also a podcaster. Mm -hmm. I'm also a professor. I'm also a university administrator. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Number two, how would you describe your job, Bob? Uh, My job consists of a couple and individual sessions each week. Uh, teach a DBT skills class once a week for the first time in 20 years. We just dropped from two classes to one about a month ago. Um, you know, honest to God, I think part of my job is to be responsive to phone calls and emails. And I'm not perfect, but I have noticed that people in our field are enormously unresponsive to prospective clients people who contact us when they're, you know, hurting or in their crisis. And I can't tell you how many people have said to me, yeah, I never got a call back from anybody or you're the first person out of 12 to respond. And um, I think part of my job, and I wish it was part of uh, the rest of our community's job, is to be responsive to those who contact us when they need, even if we can't help them directly. Yeah. Yeah. I have... Never not responded. And I haven't taken a new client in years. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you know this, actually, but recently we've been blowing up on YouTube because I'm making these reaction videos for reality TV shows. Did you know this? What, what's blowing up mean? Uh, lots of hits, lots of views. Wow. Yeah. So Yeah, I did know that you were making these reaction I haven't watched one, but I did know that you're doing them. Yeah. I mean, I don't recommend watching them if you're not into it, but uh, there's a lot of, I didn't know this and it makes total sense, but I didn't know there were so many people interested in reality TV and interested in me reacting to it. It, (laughs) it, It's a very strange phenomenon. In fact, people in the reality shows are posting on Instagram how accurate I am about them because I'm analyzing them. You know what I mean? Wait, wait. The people that you analyze tell you that you're accurate? Yeah. So the, you know, the reality TV shows have individuals that are real, right? Like Love is Blind is one of the ones that you watch, right? Right, right. So uh, wow. so they're posting on Instagram. They're like, I just listened to this podcast and he, <laughs> he, he nailed me, you know, this kind of stuff. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, and I'm I'm like, what the fuck did I say? Like, I forgot what yeah. I talked about because I'm just reacting right. to these things, and it's a very surreal time right now, actually, because you know the podcast has risen in sort of popularity over the years, but it's been this real slow, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, kind of creep over the past eleven and a half, almost twelve years. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, to be famous, to be like very mildly famous on YouTube is like a different experience I'm getting. So I'm getting a lot of requests to be people's therapists right now. Shit. From around the world. And of course, I can't, don't have the space. And obviously, I couldn't practice outside my state anyway. Mm -hmm. But um, 
I'm bringing that humble brag up because you were saying about, oh, even to those people, I still respond. You know, mm-hmm. every day right now, I'm getting like 20 requests and and I respond to every single one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I tell them, I tell them my practice is closed. But yeah, yeah I, I, as a client myself, I've contacted therapists and received no mm-hmm. response. But yeah, I think awful. it's a lot of private practitioners in any field. I, I went through a period where I was looking for a lawyer to help with a will and testament or whatever mm-hmm. you call it. Yeah. And no response to like three different, you know, I just Googled really? like estate lawyers or will lawyers in Seattle, yeah. no response. Accountants, I was looking for small business accountants, of mm-hmm. which I was willing to spend good money for. Yeah, right. No, no response. Wow. It, yeah. It, it's, uh, yeah. So I'm glad that you consider it your job to respond. Absolutely. And if you're a clinician out there, for fuck's sake, just respond. It's not hard. Yeah. It's not hard. It doesn't take much time. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing you're probably getting one or two a week at most of these kinds of requests. And even if you're full, just say, just call them and say, I'm sorry, I'm full. Have a, and, and it's also kind of your responsibility to have a few names of people who aren't full. I'm sure you know other therapists mm-hmm. or some referrals network or something. You know, get, it's not hard. So it's just have some empathy for how fucking hard it is to get someone to respond and how demoralizing it is when no one calls you back. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, Bob's job is to provide clinical services to individuals mm-hmm. and couples in his office, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is, you know, outside of his home. And he also provides DBT classes in which he teaches DBT skills to groups of clients. Mm-hmm. And you're also a professional podcaster. You do get paid to do this. On I do. Of, that's right. That's so, right. So that's another part of your Clinical. Add it to my resume. Yeah, yeah right. your psychology-related jobs. And my job are uh, everything that Bob does except for the DBT classes. I'm also a, you know, my podcasting job is quite extensive. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is uh, having my narcissistic supply supplied by <laughs> having <laughs> Love is Blind stars Instagramming about me. Um, another part of it is is just marketing the podcast, which is a whole job in a small business, you know. Oh, anybody self-employed is in the business of marketing. Right. Preparing for podcasts, mm-hmm. thinking about podcasts, getting guests mm-hmm. for podcasts, blah, blah, blah. Managing the various contracted employees like yourself. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. as much as managing is required, but I'm also a professor. So I teach, I don't know. I don't think my job's that complicated. I, number three, how do you get into this field? Was this your first choice? What led you here, Bob? Yes. First choice. How did I get into it? Uh, personal counseling was my foray into psychology as a possible career. And then after I I got a degree in psychology, which, you know, I don't know that that's necessary, but nonetheless, that's what I did. And then I got a job working in a runaway shelter. That was my first, um, I guess that my first mental health job. And then as a psych tech at a inpatient psych hospital and uh, just entry level jobs that um, were really cool and also getting experience and learning more. And then when I moved to Seattle, I got a job as a case manager for chronically mentally ill adults. It's also uh, an entry-level job that doesn't require any kind of graduate degree. And uh, that was sort of a springboard into getting into graduate school because actually I got laid off and had to do something. Oh, really? uh, So if you hadn't got laid off, you might still be at that job? I might. Really? Getting, getting laid off was not only awesome because you collect unemployment, which is just amazing, but it also was a, um impetus to uh, apply to graduate school and get going. Yeah, you know, that's a known phenomenon because so as a you know university administrator, part of my job, especially when I was more program director and, and related to that, was to market the program because Antioch, although a nonprofit, we depend on our mm-hmm. uh are we a nonprofit? I don't know. We're not really a we're not one of those universities that's just like mm-hmm. 
raking in the dough. No one's making a lot of money. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> the, the organization is not set up to um, be for profit. It's not that it doesn't right. turn a profit. It has to, otherwise it will fold. But, right. but it's, there, there's it's some goal is not money. Yeah. You know, again, this is a question for an accountant, but I think it's not mm-hmm. for profit. There's a yeah. board of directors. Right. Uh, the richest person is our president, and I'm sure his salary is probably like $200,000 or something, mm-hmm. uh, which on the scale of university presidents is pretty low, actually. Pretty low, yeah. Uh, I think the UW guy gets like millions of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. Um, so marketing our program is is a was a big part of my job and trying mm-hmm. to get uh, butts and seats and tuition paid for because otherwise we'd all lose our jobs and mm-hmm. and so one of the things that we noticed over the years that is when there's a recession we get more applicants oh really yeah in 2008 we had a huge surge in applicants wow. so it's this weird opposite world in university land where you do better in a recession than you do when times are good, probably because of what you're talking about, where people, they get laid off or their job seems to be stagnating. There's a hiring or a a freeze on promotions and people are just like, oh, I want to, I got to reset here. You know, if the job market's going to suck, well, fuck it. I'll just go back to school for three years. And by the time Mm -hmm. I'm out of school, the job market should be, should be up and running again. Mm -hmm. But that's bizarre, man. So, you would never have been a therapist potentially if they just had not laid you off. You would have been at that level. Like what a possible, what a tragedy that would have been. I mean, not no oh. offense to case managers, but no, all the all, but... all the good you've done in the world as a therapist for all your clients. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I feel very grateful for that um, paradoxical good fortune. Because you're like a really nice guy, so you would have been oh, like, thanks. well, uh, I feel bad for my coworkers and these clients. I can't abandon them if, if they would have just kept you, right? That would have been a big factor. Yeah, but and those jobs tend to be, you know, people get jaded. They they have a lot of work, and they don't get a lot of pay, and they don't get a lot of respect. And um, I think that uh, the potential for getting jaded and burned out and bitter is pretty high. So I feel really lucky because... Um, even after I finished graduate school and got an agency job, which was had some similarities to the case management job, um, I always saw myself as a volunteer. Like I think that was really important that I recognized that there was an exchange here. I was getting experience and some money in exchange for providing um, uh, hopefully a good service to in a system that is way too demanding and way too understaffed. And I think people can fall into like, you know, um, feeling ground down or feeling victimized by the demand that's placed upon them and seeing the powers that be as some kind of overlord enemy. But to me, it always was an exchange. I agree to work here. And then when I, when I decided to leave, it was like, yeah, well, okay. My time here is done. I've learned what I wanted to learn and done what I wanted to do. And now I want to do something else. So um, I feel lucky about that, too, because I think if I'd stayed in the agency, there's a potential for me to have suffered a similar kind of burnout that I think so many have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I've bored the listeners with my uh, story of how I entered the field, but just in brief, I was uh, I didn't really know what to do in my early 20s because at first I wanted to be a musician and then like I wanted mm-hmm. to go into business of music mm-hmm. and I just learned that that was not really what I wanted to do or it was too hard or something. And so I just kind of fell into marketing and although I liked it, I just didn't really find it fulfilling ultimately. And And then it just popped in my head to become a therapist. I'd been in therapy before. And for the very first time in my life, at the age of 24, it just popped in my head. It was, I think it was January or February. And by September or October, mm-hmm. I was getting my master's with Bob. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, with within six, within, uh, or within like a month of deciding mm-hmm. for the very first time, I want to be a therapist, I was applying to graduate school. So... 
Did you apply anywhere else besides Antioch? No, because I didn't really know. (laughs) To this day, I don't know how I even knew to apply to Antioch because there's Mm -hmm. no internet back then. So it's like, Mm -mm. you just have to ask around and someone Mm -hmm. around me must have said, well, I know Antioch exists, you know, and, and, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure maybe I knew about SPU or something, but mm-hmm. I, I knew enough about SPU to knew, to know I didn't really want to go there, and mm-hmm. and I, I think I just and I went to open house and it seemed fine, and mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, number four, what is the best part of your job, Bob? Oh, seeing my clients, for sure, best part of my job, uh, yeah. learning from people, getting to experience. Um, uh, intimacy, fun. It's fun actually to see clients. Um, not that their pain is fun, but it ain't all, it ain't all work, work, work. And yeah, that's the best part. What's the best part of your podcasting job? Oh, um, I think it's hanging out with you. Yeah. 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 I'd say that too. And more generally, cause I talk to more people on this podcast is, uh, the socializing aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to mm-hmm. hang out with you. I got to hang out with Rebecca. I got to hang out with Umberto mm-hmm. and Colin. You mean a... Oh, yeah, a lot of people, or just new people yeah. for the first time, you know? Right. Uh, I got to hang out with Irvin Yalom for a little bit. Oh, dude, that's <laughs> you know? awesome. Because uh, I think about during this quarantine time, I think, what would my life be like if I didn't have the podcast? I'd, I'd really be isolated, you know? Yeah. And... Yeah, it's it's um it's really great in that way. Best part of my therapy job is uh similar to you, but more specifically it's when I see people get to this space in session where they are loving others or themselves in this mm. very real authentic here and now manner. Mm. And when I feel that, I always get a, or I frequently would get a little teary. Mm-hmm. It's a couple that I sense their love and I voice it and then they agree and I, and they look at each other and they hold each other's hand and I, mm. it just feels so good, you know? Yeah. Number five, what is the toughest part about your job? Oh, shit. Uh, mm, It's stressful. Um, uh, Let's see. I'd say the toughest part, well, I don't know if this is true, but a tough part for me is when when, um, either my students or my clients are angry with me. That's really hard for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that as well. The when either I just did something stupid or Mm -hmm. a client has certain sensitivities that I accidentally stepped on Mm -hmm. and they turn on me, it uh, is very difficult. I did a whole study on difficult clinical moments and interviewed seasoned therapists about it. And it was a very frequent story that they would tell, which is when a attachment injured client was angry at them. And how how scary it is, how scary it feels to be turned mm-hmm. on like that, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. I would say the worst part about being a podcaster is people on YouTube who don't have any social skills and are extremely hostile. Uh, whether mm-hmm. they mean to be mean to me or not, uh, most people on YouTube are fine, but... It only takes one out of a hundred comments to just ruin oh, yeah. to just ruin your day. I mean, someone who just either they just critic all they do is criticize when this is a free fucking thing. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you didn't have to listen. You know, like I, I I didn't force you to listen. I didn't I didn't charge you money. Uh, if if you're not if you're not into long form boring people talk, then why'd you listen to begin with? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I'm, I, I'm not Tom Hanks. I'm not Jack Black. I, I don't know. Just what'd you expect? And, and, and I'm also not a computer encyclopedia. I'm going to flub some details down then. Um, so there's that commenter, which 
it, it just mm-hmm. hurts, you know, like, yeah, it because it, I, I think people just don't realize like we're human beings or something like I always give the analogy of imagine you are scheduled to give a talk in front of a thousand people. And for, you know, a few months you prepare emotionally and materially for that talk. And then for an hour you're talking and, you know, most people are nodding their heads and but you're not really you don't really know how things are being received. And then you hand out this comment sheet and, uh, you know, only 5% people fill it out and you finally get the comment sheets and the first five people, the, the only thing they have to say is like, so when you said that the, you know, a year has 365 days, that's wrong because there's leap year and that, and every four years there's 366 in it. Like, I can't believe how stupid you are. Like, when the whole talk was on attachment style, you know what I mean? And and it's like, I wasn't talking about the length of a year. I just, that was just an offhand comment I made. And mm-hmm. like, and it just hurts because it's like, I spent three months out of my life and all mm-hmm. that stress and time to like, mm-hmm. to do this for you. And at any point in time, you could have got out of the room and walked or you didn't have to come listen. And mm-hmm. that's what you have to say. Like, Jesus Christ, you know, it just, it fucking hurts. Or they'll say something more, I don't know, more deeper, I I suppose. They'll just be like, everything you're saying is stupid, you know, and they'll Mm -hmm. just list like every, every sort of opposing thought they have. Mm. And I don't, I absolutely don't mind being opposed. I mean, it's not great to be opposed, but there's a way to do it, you know, and, and the thing is, is in person, it never happens this way because people, I think, just understand emotionally better what's happening. You know, after a talk, if someone came up to me and was just like, so I kind of disagree with what you're saying earlier, they would phrase it that way. They'd be like, I really like your talk, but I kind of disagreed with what you're saying. I, you know, let me let me offer you my opinion. And then we'd have mm-hmm. a back and forth and I'd listen. I'd be like, oh, thanks. But that's not the way people comment on the Internet. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- mm-hmm. people are just like, you're a... You're a libtard cuck and, you know, everything you're saying is stupid and blah, blah, blah. So it's it, – and it gets under your skin. And I – you know, yeah. at first – the for the first five years that this was happening, I was just like, man, how do famous people deal with this? Because they've got mm-hmm. to get a million times more than I do. And mm-hmm. and I just thought, well, it must be something about me or it must be something about um, familiarity over time. But over the years, I've really keyed in on interviews with – really famous people and other podcasters and YouTube people. And mm-hmm. and it's the same for them. When they are honest, they're, they say the same thing I do. What, mm-hmm. But what they've come to is they don't even read it anymore. They just ignore mm-hmm. it. They don't, read, they don't read good comments. They don't read bad comments. They just, they don't even read the comments. There, you know, there are actors who don't read their reviews, their movie, or directors who don't read their movie reviews. And... It just, it's sad that that's the solution, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. you just have to completely cut yourself off from it. Now, I will say that I'm continuing to read the comments, uh, and I'm trying to become familiar with it. But, man, there are some, just a a tiny little, one of those kinds of comments that'll, it'll just, it'll just Mm -hmm. kind of ruin my day. And it Mm -hmm. sounds stupid, but, but it does, man. It's, 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 it's just, it's. It's really hard, you know. I would totally ruin my day too. Yuck. Yeah. yeah. So I say that's the toughest part about being a podcaster. Number six. How would you describe your work environment? Hmm. Very comfortable. Colleen decorated my office. It's a really nice place to go. Feels like sitting in a living room. Couch is great for a nap when I have a break. Um, my chair's tall, and they share office space. And we now provide snacks. So if people come to the office. We have, well, not these days because, A, I don't go to the office because we're all, you know, working from home and, you know, whatever. But when, when the dust settles, you can come to my office and get a cup of tea and have a little snack before a session. It's really cool. I never thought I'd like doing that, but I really like I really like doing that. Yeah. I, I've been inspired by that, although I haven't done what you're doing, but <laughs> I've been inspired by that. I mean, part of that is like, thinking about having water available Mm -hmm. because you know when you're thirsty it's just like you just want some water to sip on Mm 
Mm-hmm. Like, occasionally, I've had a client that will say, can you give me a glass of water? You know, and then I'm like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But to have just water just sitting there, I think, is a good idea. Yeah. Uh, my work environment is I work from home. My I see my clients and my supervisees in my home office. Uh, I, I have a pretty big office. Uh, it's it's in my house. It's um, more like a, I don't know, like a living room style room. Mm-hmm. And I ha- it's both my podcasting room, my computer room, my therapy office. Anyway, and then at my university, you know, I have all my space there too. Number seven, mm-hmm. what, are, what is your relationship like with your boss or coworkers? I don't really have a boss. I, I don't have a boss. Uh, I have a lot of colleagues uh no i can't even say that i have some colleagues uh that i have like i think i probably interact with you more than anybody else but there's other um there's another therapist there's two other therapists in my office and you know we we bump into one another occasionally um but when it's doing this kind of work being self-employed there's not a whole lot of interaction with other people except my clients throughout the day yeah i don't mind that but and some people I think get lonely, but yeah, it's okay with me. Especially when you have the contrast of actually working in an agency and all the pros and cons of that environment, yeah. which can yeah. be, which can have pros in that you're a part of a team and you see a lot of yeah. people. But the cons are the drama and the some of the personalities can be really mm-hmm. hard to tolerate, mm-hmm. especially if they have authority over you and mm-hmm. start de- making demands. If they're unhappy too, which is not uncommon in a lot of agency work. Right. Yeah. yeah similar for me. I I have a lot more colleagues in that mm-hmm. I am at the university, especially now since the program has been growing over the past 10 years. And I have a boss and I have a boss's boss and I have a boss's boss's boss and I have a boss's 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 boss. So mm-hmm. I have a lot of bosses above me. But being prof- being a professor... <laughs> Uh, I've always felt this. Professors never consider themselves to be an employee. They always consider themselves to be the master of their domain. Mm-hmm. And because I was a program director, so I was the boss of many professors at one point. <laughs> and I can tell you from experience that, you know, trying to get them to do your bidding was almost impossible. <laughs> uh, so. Um, that was actually one of the reasons why I didn't want to be program director anymore. I mean, one, I just I don't like telling people what to do. I I more like l- to lay it out and say like, here's the situation. Uh, we're all on the same team, and obviously we all want to you know work towards this goal together because we all benefit. But uh, I found that people still didn't really respond usually. So, um, anyway, but I really like my boss. I have the luxury. I had the luxury of actually. <clears throat> making my boss, which is that when I stepped down as program director voluntarily, I could uh, hire whoever I wanted to to be my boss. I was wow. – when I think about it, it's just kind of weird that I had the power, the sole power <laughs> to make a program director from whomever I wanted to. And Wow. Yeah, isn't that funny? Like to put that it in that, funny. to put it like you think there would have been a committee or uh-huh. something, but there wasn't. I probably circumvented some some university policy by doing this, by the way. But hmm. in fact, I'm quite positive I did. But I just I'm a, I'm a do it yourself, at, you know, yeah. ask for permission later kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and I picked Jennifer Sampson, whom I really like and thought to be a very level headed person. That's the main aspect you want in a boss is them mm-hmm. to be level-headed. You know, they could have other flaws, but if they're level-headed and they can they have common sense, then that usually carries the day. So I really really like like my boss. Um so there's that. Mm-hmm. I also really like my coworkers at the university. There are some that I'm not enthusiastic about, but I just distance myself as much as I can from them. Um, working at a university is like working at an agency. There's a variety of personalities and, um, some people have at least in, you know, in relation to me, very problematic personalities. And so it's not always easy. Yeah. Right. Number eight, what type of training or education does one need to become what you are? 
Then I got to get a master's degree and and then keep on learning. Yeah. yeah. Right. For me. Yeah. It's same for me. Uh, I have a doctorate, but I, do, I don't need it for what I'm doing. Uh, well, you needed it to um, for for being a professor, right? That was the encouragement or requirement? Nope. Um, I oh, was a really? professor for 10 years without a doctorate. Actually, right. for 15 years without a doctorate. Oh. Um, the only reason why I got a doctorate was because my mentor, Paul David, who was program director at the time, he wanted me to take his job as program director. And you could only become program director if you're core faculty, and you can only become core faculty if you're programmed, uh, if you have a doctorate. Got it. So I did it for him. I, um, you know, I also kind of wanted a doctorate and kind of wanted to extend my training, but similar to you and your case manager situation, if if Paul hadn't basically forced me to get a doctorate, I probably never would have gotten one. Right. Do you and like that you did? I do because it's in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through some difficult times because of it, but I think it 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 made me a better professor. It probably made me a better podcaster as well. But mm-hmm. there were other ways I could have achieved those goals without having to put myself through difficulty that the doctorate provided. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, num- and then of course, like you, I've done tons of training. I always say yeah. that 99% per- and training on my own, 99%, per- I'll say 98% of what I know I've done on my own. Uh, 1% came from schooling and another 1% came from trainings from supervisors or from trainings that, you know, official, official trainings anyway. Mm-hmm. Number nine, what, tell me a bit about yourself, some traits or what kind of person one needs to be to have your job. Uh, well, oh shit, that's, where do you start? I mean, uh, probably want to be a good listener, probably want to, um, look at people with, um, compassion and respect and, um, you know, avoid judging. Those are probably some, some important bits. Yeah. I, that's a that's the first thing I would say too. Having said that, I've trained a lot of people who come to me with a variety of innate compassion for humans. Mm-hmm. And f- for those who come to me with a lot of compassion, obviously I don't need to work on them that much, but uh, no, I'm not even going to say that. So there's a bell curve. And let's just say let's put a number to it. So People come to me with an average of on one to 10, with 10 being like Bob level compassion and one being like Donald Trump level compassion. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get, I I probably get an average of of three on a scale from one to 10 Mm -hmm. as they come to me as students and supervisees and trainees. Some people have five and some people have one, but there's Mm -hmm. a bell curve around three. All of them need to get up above five in order to be effective and also just not to burn out because compassion really fuels your meaning and your oh, yeah. uh, your enjoyment of, of the job and plus makes your outcomes so much better because the clients really feel your compassion if it's authentic and not made up. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to get everyone up. I, no one comes to me with enough compassion to, to begin with because – we're taught as human beings to only have compassion for certain kinds of people. And generally speaking, most people don't have that global compassion that you need to have where you can even have compassion for Donald Trump's of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can have compassion for the Ted Bundy's of the world. Doesn't mean you approve of their behavior, but Mm-mm. you have compassion. You feel for them. You feel bad for them. You know, the way, a the way a mother cares for their child, even when the child does something really terrible. So it's not blind though. There's a compassion I think is based in um, an understanding of mm, what it is to be a human in all its variants. Right. So it's not like you're just like, Oh, woo woo. I'll go hug Ted Bundy. Right. It's like an understanding of what is his nature, you know? Yeah. Um, Well, not only an understanding, uh, but I mean, I don't. Maybe this is what you're saying. But mm-hmm. 
from that understanding just naturally it, the under it's yeah. but it's a it's a it's a narrative that's of, of a particular sort that lends itself to compassion <laughs> yeah um right a, a non-pejorative um a phenomenally phenomenologically empathic view will will uh, engender compassion yeah and I also think there's another aspect to it that sort of, for me, supersedes mm. the clinical side, which is the spiritual side. Mm. I grew up Christian heavily, and the, the sort of Christianity that I was taught, the, the main dominant message that I was given throughout my childhood was love mm -hmm. and forgiveness and nonviolence and non-judgment and openness and compassion and charity and the the scene in the bible where Jesus kisses Mary Magdalene's feet i think that happens mm -hmm. or kisses the leper or washes the sinner's feet this kind of thing Mm -hmm. that uh, humility and through that one is elevated by mm -hmm. loving those who everyone hates <laughs> for mm -hmm. no reason other than their class or their, or their past. And I really internalize that. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I, I don't know if you would call that a spiritual thing, but the value was definitely uh, internalized, and I attribute a lot to that. Um, Absolutely. And so everyone comes to me needing more compassion. And so in terms of like, you know, what personality, what, what sort of personality traits does someone need to have? Again, we would normally say compassion, but anyone can, can develop, can tap into their compassion. So... I've had people who come to me at a one, and although they're a pretty good clinician, the way they talk, it comes across pretty judgmental, but I work on it with them. I'm like, because mm -hmm. that's a big part of what I do. I'd say that's half of what I do with my trainees mm -hmm. is trying to tap into that clinical understanding that you talked about earlier. But also, you know, I was saying to my students yesterday because one student was really one intern was really struggling with a particular client and having compassion and um, she was you know just really struggling with one client mm -hmm. that that has some very concerning behaviors you know the the client uh, without going into details has the sort of behaviors that most people would be like yuck mm -hmm. i don't like that and she was having our time and i said to her when you answered the call to become a healer of souls. This is not the sort of person you thought you were going to treat, right? And she's like, no, I did not think this was the sort of person. I thought it was going to be other people. And I said, this was the person you answered the call for. Hmm. This person needs you more than anybody. Anyone who is easily treated doesn't need you as much as the people who are more difficultly treated because these mm -hmm. people might have probably have never met someone who can overcome their bias against them. That is very easy to come to given the way they push people away mm -hmm. and they might not ever meet another person like you. So you are the one human being in this person's entire history and future that has the training the support and the know-how to put aside your biases and really provide a secure attachment for this person. And just imagine the amount of healing potential in that person, given how damaged they are. Just look mm -hmm. at their behavior. When you answered the call, this is the client you were answering. Mm -hmm. And she, that helped her. Yeah. <laughs> she was I still, imagine. she well, she was still like, oh God, okay, fine. But but that's what I spent a lot of time on is getting people, okay, fine, you're a five. And with people that are easy to have compassion for, you have a lot of compassion. But mm -hmm. you got to get 
to be Bob level compassion. You got to get up to a 10 where you have compassion for people that it's really hard to have compassion for. You know, what did JFK say? You know, uh, we do the things uh, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. <laughs> yeah, the moon. <laughs> hey, that's lovely. You, you you helped her from leaning out to leaning back in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I do that. That's cool. Like I said, that's about half of what I do. I did that with another intern just earlier yesterday mm-hmm. in a sort of parallel manner. And, um, but that I, feels good. Yeah, I mean, it. I don't know. It. I do believe that love can save us. And it routinely saves us. And it doesn't, you know, it it's, applies to therapy as well. Number 10, any advice for someone who is trying to get to, well, so to answer the full question of number nine, you know, they're like, what are some traits that a person needs to have to be, to have your job? I would say there's no particular trait. There's often that people will say like, I'm not smart enough. Mm-hmm. I don't have enough compassion. I have a lot of damage in my own personal life. I am kind of lazy, you know, just various different things. I've trained thousands of people with a wide variety of personality traits. And I'm here to say, if you have heard, if you're answering the call and you have the calling, you feel that in your bones that you want to do this job, there's nothing that will get in your way. You can, you can be uptight. You can be a perfectionist. You can be kind of a dick sometimes. You could be... (laughs) You could have a personality disorder. You could mm-hmm. suffer from major depression. You could have suicidality. You could um, you could be deaf or blind, or you could have autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of those things get in your way of becoming an effective therapist at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, there, there's nothing that can't be adjusted for, and no one comes to me with all the personality traits that they need to have before they can become become an effective therapist. So, yeah, good point. Number 10. Any advice for someone who is trying to get to where you are? Bob. Um, persevere. Uh, start small. Mm, no, I don't really have any advice. Yeah, persevere is a good one. Mm-hmm. It's a long game. It is long. The other thing I'll say is get a, at least two or three mentors. Yeah, that's a good idea. People who are much further ahead of you in their career, who you routinely check in with, get perspective. Yeah. Am I in the right track? What do I need to be doing? How This happened to me. How am I supposed to see it? Also, the connections that you can get from a mentor. I have had three main mentors in my career, and my career would be nothing without them. Yeah. Number 11, are you passionate about your job? Does it feel like a job, or do you genuinely love it, Bob? Oh, everybody has those days when they're slogging. But yeah, I genuinely love what I do. Yeah, me too. Uh, People, someone emailed me the other day, they're like, I don't understand how you can produce so much podcast content and you're also a therapist. And I didn't have the heart to say, I'm actually a full-time professor. That's the main problem. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, uh, and I was, and they're like, well, how do you do it? And I, the reason why is because none of it feels like work to me. The only, there's a, there's a, there's some part of being a professor that feels like work, all the meetings and the, the sort of paperwork and stuff. But when I'm teaching, that doesn't feel like work. When mm-hmm. I'm podcasting, that doesn't feel like work. When I'm talking with my clients, that doesn't feel like work. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't feel like work. So yeah, passionate about it. Love it. I wake up and I wake up. I, I feel so bad for people who don't have this because most people don't mm-hmm. in, in my experience. But I wake up every day and go like, I can't wait to do my job today. Like, mm-hmm. uh, let me add it. I mean, the podcast is a good example. I don't have to do anything for the podcast. I could wake up on any given day and decide to do nothing. I don't have a boss. Yeah. Um, I could even almost just say, okay, 
I've done a thousand plus episodes. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Or I'll just do one a month. I mean, a lot of podcasters, it's just one a month, something like that. I'm getting to the point now where I'm making an episode almost every day. Yeah. Because I love this shit. <laughs> I mean, what narcissist doesn't like talking about himself? I mean, come on. <laughs> Number 12, what is an average day for you look like at your job? This is the, this is the last question. I think this is the yeah. best question. Because I'm actually genuinely curious what a day in the life of Bob looks while he's at work. It was really variable. Um, uh, sometimes it's clients stacked up hour after hour, and I'm not as young as I used to be, and so I don't have the energy that I used to. And so four or five hours of therapy straight is pretty tiring. But most of the time I have um, breaks. And you know, if you're self-employed, to some degree you always have something to do. There's always some work, but I'm kind of like you and it doesn't really feel like work. It's just like, well, you know, yeah, this is what I'm doing because this is what I'm doing. Not because, oh, my job requires. And there's a lot of therapists, you know, um, that, you know, don't have that luxury, you know, that um, perhaps work in an agency where you're expected to show up certain hours. But um, my day is as I make it. It tends to start later than most people's. So I start at either 10 or 11 and... um I'd say half the time it'll go later than most people till seven or eight at night. Um, but it isn't like 10 to eight of just clients. There's uh, lots of breaks in between and um, a nap or two and eating lunch and, um, you know, then doing some of the, uh, you know, administrative stuff, returning phone calls and answering emails and attending to the financial aspect of the thing. And, um, you know, whatever, um, so my day is really variable and has a lot of freedom and autonomy in it, which I, I think uh, I really, I really like that. Yeah. For me, Monday is my clinical day. So I see my clients and my supervisees and my consultees mm-hmm. uh, on that day. I And same, I will start at around 10 or 11 and can work until six or seven with breaks in between. So I might see like six appointments on a Monday. Mm-hmm. Tuesday is at my university. Usually that's when we have meetings. I will sometimes teach. Uh, the classes at Antioch, you just, you just meet once a week for three hours. So, mm-hmm. so I might teach in the afternoon on Tuesdays. I might have like administrative, there's emails. I, so I will say, I guess part of my job is when I wake up, one of the first things I do is I try to reply to all my emails. I try to, every day I try to get to inbox zero. Now I know some people are like me out there, but most people it's like your inbox, you know, you, you have 50 to a hundred emails kind of sitting there, you know, mm. as a mildly compulsive person, I hate that. I, I love it when I can, when I look at, and I have a work email and, and my regular email and I have total inbox zero. It just feels so good to just, everything's mm-hmm. done. And uh, I guess that's another part of the reason why I respond to everybody because it feels like something that hangs over my head. I don't like things hanging over my head. So um, so I, I try to get that done in the morning. Uh, and then on Wednesday, I, I always teach in the morning for three hours. And then the rest of the week, it's, it's a little bit of, of uh, university stuff and a lot of podcast stuff. Thursday... Um, I'm, I'm, you know, right now it's Thursday and we're, we're recording in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, later I'm going to go on YouTube live and answer a bunch of people's questions. I'm going to be recording with Rebecca later today. We're going to do a D and D podcast later today wow. over, over zoom tomorrow. I'm being interviewed on KUOW about gaslighting. Really? Yeah. About gaslighting or something. Wow. I, I'm not quite sure. And then I'm on someone else's podcast or someone's coming on my podcast tomorrow on Friday on the weekends. I might, uh, do some podcasting as well. I might make like a reaction video or something. So I don't know. A lot of it happens in my office in front of my computer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I guess another part of my job is me and my wife, because my wife works on the podcast. She does all the, the social media stuff and the posting and, but we'll have like strategy talks, you know, she'll say like on YouTube, people are wanting you to do more reality TV show reaction videos. And we'll talk about 
how to do that and what the best use of my time is. And I'll kind of balance it out with what I like to do and what I think I have to offer the world. And, and so that's another part of the day as well, which is really kind of fun to mm-hmm. be able to work with my wife essentially and be a part of each other's life in that way. Nice. Um, so yeah, that's what my average day looks like. So this first email is from anonymous patron. She writes, I just want to drop a quick thank you for today's episode. Uh, so this is a while back. I had canceled my appointment with my therapist today because I was too hurt over something he said. But then I heard you talking about borderline personality disorder and exactly this. I realized me being upset with my therapist was quite likely about my attachment trauma and not because he didn't care about me. Anyway, after listening, I uncanceled my appointment and talked to him about being hurt. It was really scary and hard, but I came away feeling really cared for and like I matter. Thank you. I'm so grateful for this podcast, and I really, really appreciate what you do. Bob, what do you think about that? That's fucking awesome. Good for you, A. That's real bravery. And hey, good for you, good for you or us, whichever one she listened to, because that's cool. That's a hell of an impact. Yeah, we get a lot of emails along these lines where someone with attachment trauma, relational trauma, will talk about how they really are upset at their therapist and will cancel and... Mm-hmm. I would say a good portion of those experiences are better healed by doing what this anonymous patron did, which is to uncancel the appointment, talk to your therapist about what, what happened and how it hurt, give your therapist a chance to prove to you that humans can be trusted because therapists, for the most part, can be trusted. And through that experience, you'll walk away like this, feeling cared for and feeling like you matter. It's a corrective experience. As Bob always says, uh, I don't remember the exact words used, but it's not about not making mistakes. It's about how you respond to the mistakes. Yeah. And as, as a therapist. So as a therapist, Bob and I, we're going to make – it's not that we – can avoid making mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt our, uh, particularly our attachment trauma clients. We're going to hurt their feelings. That's just going to happen. The key is, is how do we respond to that and how do clients allow us to respond to that? Mm -hmm. So it's a two-way street there. Another email here. I just finished listening to The Lack of Self and MSE for probably the hundredth time because I find it so helpful. So this is a this is an episode that you and I did, Bob, where I wanted to talk about the mental status exam, mm-hmm. and somehow we morphed into talking about lack of self, and so I combined, or I don't know, yeah. the episode ended up being two different topics, and it's such a ridiculous joining of two dumb things. Like la- <laughs> lack of self is such a complicated thing, and that episode was so deep and so interesting. But then we also talked about the mental status exam, which is like this completely different topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really so, is. Yeah. So, but I didn't really think about it at the time. And so when I released the episode, I just called it Lack of Self and, M- and the MSE because mm-hmm. that's what we talked about. <laughs> but, yeah. but the episode, obviously, the mental status exam section of that episode isn't very interesting. And the Lack of Self is so much more interesting. But now – and it's one of the episodes that people hold up as like this amazing episode. And it's just so mm-hmm. – I always just think it's just so funny that it's called – Lack of self in the MSE. But anyway, (laughs) this person says, I just finished listening to the lack of self and the MSE episode for probably the hundredth time because I find it so helpful. I really, really want to read Bob's book. Please suggest to him that he could publish it under a pseudonym and just let the people he doesn't mind reading it know what the pseudonym pseudonym is, including (laughs) us patrons. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's lovely. Do you find it interesting that people listen to episodes more than once? I do. Yeah. I, I, yeah, but I, 
you know, well, you know me, I'm, I'm not quite a Luddite, but I don't really, I don't really understand this stuff. So, um, uh, it's a sort of a foreign land. So I'm probably missing the boat on a lot of things, but yeah, I do find that amazing. Uh, and I'm glad that, um, it, it has that impact. Yeah. Did you know that we also gave away two $2,000 scholarships recently? I did. I, I actually, um, now I'm on the email thing. So when something happens, I get an email and I read the one just this morning and then the other one, you yeah. know, the other day. Sound yeah. like lovely, deserving people. Yeah. So we haven't really announced it on the podcast yet, but I think it's safe to do so now. We, mm-hmm. uh, because we reached a goal on Patreon, we had enough people on pa- pa- Patreon uh, become patrons. We uh, gave out uh, two more scholarships. We've, we've already given out through two other Three? scholarships. Um, mm-hmm. So this is our third and fourth scholarship. And so we gave $4,000 to two, you know, as a total to two students. One of the $2,000 scholarships was actually donated by a patron of the podcast who wanted to remain anonymous. So she just gave us $2,000 and said, do whatever you want to with it. And I was like, well, how about we make a fund for a scholarship and give it to someone? So... Uh, the two recipients were Shalit Rosario or Chalet Rosario. I don't know how to pronounce her first name. We did talk on the phone and I f- failed to ask her <laughs> how to pronounce her name. But anyway, <laughs> Sh- I'm just going to say Shalit Rosario. She uh, is going to University of British Columbia, getting a master's in counseling degree. She is from India. And for that reason, she has to pay twice the tuition as regular students mm-hmm. and doesn't qualify for a lot of scholarships. And in India, she grew up in a small village and is very active in that community. And she plans on going back to India to help build up mental health um, services in India after graduation and Mm -hmm. um, she had done a lot to make the world a better place already, which I won't go into, but so the scholarship is for people who have already made a positive difference in the world by volunteering their extra time and who have plans to make a difference in the world and who also really need the money, meaning they, you know, they don't come from rich people. Mm -hmm. Are the other winner was Haley Wilson and she is getting her uh, master's degree at Oregon State University, which I had a hard time awarding her that because Oregon State is a rival of University of Washington. Didn't I mean, you, I thought you required her to transfer. Yeah. Um, not that we can say Oregon State's a rival because their football team has always sucked, but, you know. <laughs> the Pac 12. Yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, but yeah, she, she's getting her master's. Uh, in counseling at Oregon State, and she got her bachelor's degree in women and gender studies. She wants to eventually get her doctorate and become a professor. She says that, she says in her uh, essay, growing up in the Bible Belt as a queer teen, I have felt the weight of prejudice and have been affected by the actions of those who did not understand nor value diversity, unquote. She worked for AmeriCorps as a volunteer, which is um, a very selfless, altruistic thing to do, very much of a positive difference in the world. And uh, there's another quote from her. She says, because she's already working with people, I think domestic violence, if I'm not mistaken. Sometimes I'm really tired when I come home, but when I wake up every day wanting to help, but, but I wake up every day wanting to help those in need and hear those who have not been heard. Uh-huh. Unquote. To hear those who have not been heard. So, mm. yeah, another very worthy recipient of our scholarship money. And all that comes from patrons. So we just take some of the money that the patrons give us and put it aside and then hand it along to people who are going to work in mental health to make a positive difference in the world. We've already given out to other scholarships and it. It's really one of the highlights of of my life to yeah. to be able to to do that. Um, wow! To you know, as a student, when you get a two thousand dollar check in the mail, it's just like, oh my god, you know. Um, yeah. So, you know, I I just and it reminds me 
did I did I send a check to both of them? <laughs> <laughs> did I send out scholarship checks? I know I sent one. I know I sent one, but um, I'm just I just have to make sure I sent both. Of them. <laughs> it's one of those things like, did I leave the stove on? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Bob, what's the final word to people out there, related or not? Uh. Be kind to yourselves. If you're a clinician, enjoy your clients. And if you're a client out there, be kind to yourself and enjoy your therapist because (laughs) you deserve it.